Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire George R. R. Martin is writing modern mythology. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, crows and ravens, dire wolves and dragons. It's your starry host, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. And before we get to today's topic, I have some very important things to tell you about our podcast. First of all, we are switching and upgrading our podcast hosting site, which means that we have to switch to a new podcast feed as well. In other words, and this is the important part, so listen close, all of you subscribed to the podcast through iTunes or any other medium will need to now subscribe to the new feed. The name of the old podcast feed, which you have been listening to us on up till now, has been changed to Old Feed Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, while the new feed now has the proper name Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. I'll put out this podcast and the next on both feeds, and then the old one will disappear, vanishing into the ether. We've had a tremendous response to our podcast so far, for which we are incredibly grateful, and it's necessitated stepping up to a more professional podcast hosting site. Our website address is now just lucifermeanslightbringer.com, and by the way, that's a great place to find copious linkage to the new podcast feed, as well as to the RSS feed itself, for those of you who listen that way. I keep saying our podcast because the mythical astronomy of ice and fire is a team effort. It's a team effort on my end, where my wife, the Amethyst Koala, and my good friends, Lady Nightwind and Paige Lawrence, contribute their vocal acting skills to liven up what would otherwise just be me talking for a really long time and probably putting people to sleep. It's a team effort because all of the ideas in these podcasts and essays have been honed and tempered through literally thousands of comments worth of discussion on Westeros.org over the past year and a half. Most of these chapters of what I am playfully calling the Bloodstone Compendium are refined versions of earlier essays that I posted on Westeros.org, and believe me, they've gotten a lot better thanks to everyone's input. Some of the very best ideas have come from other people, in fact, so again, it's all about teamwork, and for this I am eternally grateful. Heck, I would never have troubled to write any of this if there weren't fan forms full of people around to care. The entire fandom is about teamwork and collaboration. And since I've started this podcast, I'm also incredibly grateful to have received major support from Aziz and Ashea at History of Westeros, as well as other luminaries of the fandom such as Lady Gwyn and Yokeboy from Radio Westeros, Jeff Hartline, aka Brendan Beefish of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and the great folks at Pawn to Player, the internet's foremost blog on all things Sansa Stark. Many of you listening heard about our podcast from one of these folks. The Song of Ice and Fire community really does support each other, and it's been wonderful to be a part of it. Most of all, it's a team effort because of the support, encouragement, and enthusiasm we've received from all of you, and without that, we wouldn't be doing this, period. I don't want to single anyone out and embarrass them, but take a look at the comments section on my WordPress page, and you'll see a lot of really kind notes from people who've gained new enthusiasm and appreciation for the novels because of reading or listening to Mythical Astronomy. And that's exactly what this is all about for me. Turning people on to the amazing thing that George R.R. R. Martin has done through the use of symbolism and mythology. I'm just really fired up about all this stuff, and I can't help but share it with the fan community and see who else feels the same way. I believe that George has put a lot of effort and thought into creating this deeper dimension of archetype and symbol in his writing. He's created connections between past and future, between sky and ground. He's built on classic figures from world mythology and twisted them around in new and incredible ways to fashion his own archetypal characters, whose divine roles are played out by the characters in the story. He's done all of this not only to be artistic and clever, but because he's actually participating in a grand tradition of esoteric symbolic art. Keeping this tradition alive is of critical importance and tremendous value to society, and that's why I believe that this facet of A Song of Ice and Fire is so worthy of study. This podcast is intended to be our vehicle to explore these inner workings, 
and it is fueled by enthusiasm, both yours and mine. When I speak of enthusiasm, I'm talking about a combined 30,000 downloads of our six podcasts since we started eight months ago. That's not a huge number compared to the big boys, but it's a fantastic start for a new podcast, and it's definitely something I would never have expected when I started this path of exploration. I started writing essays because I realized that dragons coming from the moon could only be meteors, and a few months later, I started recording my essays into audio form because they were growing so long, and I wanted to make them easier for people to digest. But I really had no idea what to expect as far as a response. I didn't know how many people would be into the kind of analysis of symbolism and myth that we do on this podcast. Turns out, you guys are into it. Awesome. You have no idea how wonderful this makes me feel, truly. So here's the deal. We'd really like to keep this thing going. Not only keep it going, but to take it to new heights. There are so many other subjects I want to cover besides Azor High and Lightbringer. We have the Others and the Children of the Forest still to discuss, to say nothing of the Green Men on the Isle of Faces, whom I think are one of the big mysteries that will come into play in the Endgame. We haven't really gotten into some of my very favorite myths like Durin God's Grief, the Ironborn Legends of the Grey King, Garth the Green, or the Night's King and his Icy Corpse Bride with Moon Pale Skin. How did you guys like the Tyrion Targaryen episode? We have a bunch of other main characters with extensively developed personal symbolism, just like Tyrion, Jon, and Danny, and I'd like to do an individual episode on each one. And even though I am loath to make predictions, I do have a few squirreled away for when the time is right and the appropriate groundwork is laid. I have at least one more bombshell about Azor High in particular, which I am trying my hardest to get to as soon as I can. We want to bring all this to you and more. We'd like to bring you at least one podcast a month, perhaps more if I slice them up into smaller parts, which is something I'm thinking about doing. We'd like to start doing some short YouTube videos, which would be like condensed versions of the basic elements of my longer writings, with spiffy-looking visual aids and animations of exploding moons. We'd like to do more collaborations with other people, like we did with History of Westeros, to cover House Dane and the mysterious City of Ashai by the Shadow. Most of all, we'd like to think of new ways to get the word out about this expertly crafted layer of symbolism and myth which, in my opinion, elevates A Song of Ice and Fire to the level of true masterpiece. And so, to that end, we are starting a Patreon account for the mythical astronomy of Ice and Fire and inviting you to join us in this mission. For those of you who haven't heard of Patreon, they are a web-based utility made to give people an easy way to support content creators of all sorts whom they enjoy. To be a patron of the arts, in other words. A lot of podcasts and artists are moving to this format because it allows them to continue to present free content while also giving a means to those who would support their media to do so. And that's just what we're going to do here. The podcast will remain free, and please feel free to keep listening for free. But if you'd like to help keep the podcast going and propel it onward and upward, I am officially inviting you to join your Starry Host LML in the Starry Host. That's right. I've got some goodies for you, beginning with having your name written in the stars. The idea with Patreon is that they allow you to choose a monthly donation amount with different rewards and extras from content creators at different donation levels. If you're familiar with History of Westeros, whom I've been a Patreon supporter of for a while now, then you'll know what I'm talking about. You support someone because you like what they do, of course, but the goodies are a nice way to make it more fun. So, here's how it's going to work for Mythical Astronomy. Join the Starry Host. Pledge $1 or more per month. Become a patron at any level and join the Starry Host. All patrons get to choose a mythicized name or have me choose one for you, as you prefer, and then have it written in the Starry Host, a soon-to-be-created Starry Backdrop on the Mythical Astronomy WordPress page. All members of the Starry Host will receive a desktop-sized image of a brand new piece of Mythical Astronomy artwork created by yours truly with subsequent pieces to follow on occasion. Finally, all members of the Starry Host will receive advance notice of future topics and will have access to a Patreon comment thread where you can have input on said topic. If I use your idea, you get your name read in the podcast and full credit bestowed. Bleeding Stars. Pledge $3 or more per month. Instead of remaining a part of the Starry Backdrop, you emerge to prominence as a bleeding star, bright in the night sky. In addition to having your mythicized name written in the Starry Host and everything else listed above, you will have your mythicized name read at the end of a podcast. 
Yes, with amazing animals as leaders guitar work blazing in the background. Acolyte, Church of Starry Wisdom. Pledge $5 or more per month. You will get to sponsor a specific section of an upcoming podcast. I will send you a list of cleverly named section titles, and then you get to choose one you like, and I'll read your name at the section change as the sponsor of that section. Depending on participation, your turn will come back around every few podcasts or so, and as always, you receive the screen backdrop and your name written in the Starry Host. Initiate. Church of Starry Wisdom. Pledge $7 or more per month. You will be sponsoring sections, just as the Acolytes are, but with a twist. I will tell you the content of the section, and you, as an initiate, will use your burgeoning wisdom to come up with the clever section title. In addition to having your name read as the section sponsor, you will be given credit for your wit so that all may marvel. I've set the standard with titles like Your Own Personal Mithras, We See Dead People, and Sansa Stark Explains Her Moonblood, and now it's up to you to raise the bar. Priest, Church of Starry Wisdom, pledge $10 or more per month. Your wisdom will be immediately called upon to name a section title, but this will only be a warm-up for your sorceress powers. You must take up the raiment of the Starry Wisdom Church, which means that I will send you an amazing mythical astronomy t-shirt which will be laden with mandalas of symbolic esoterica designed by yours truly. Guys and girls tees will be available, and shirts will ship out when we reach 10 Patreon supporters at this level or above. Best of all, every four to six months, depending on participation, I will make a new design and just send you a new t-shirt. So it's something like a Mythical Astronomy t-shirt club. Sacred Order of the Black Hand. Pledge $13 or more per month. Members of the Black Hand are entitled to all the rights and privileges of the previous levels, such as the clever naming of the section title with accompanying dedication, the mythical astronomy artwork backdrop for your computer, the clever mythical name created by yourself or myself or both, and the glorious raiment of the Church of Starry Wisdom. And we're talking about the t-shirt again, no weird cult robes or anything. In addition, Starry Wisdom Priests of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand will receive by mail a high-quality print of the t-shirt mandala, but in an alternate color scheme. If you wish, I will befoul it with my signature. Avatar of one of the twelve houses of heaven. Pledge $19 or more per month. Okay, so now we're in true high roller territory. You've had a bountiful harvest, and you're trying to make some sort of statement to the universe about your extreme prowess and generosity. You've taken a shine to ye old mythical astronomy show, and you want some kind of unique prize that nobody else has. Well, I have just the thing for you. Each one of the twelve zodiacal constellations are referenced in a cryptic and awesome way in A Song of Ice and Fire, with each being tied to a specific first men house. You choose a constellation, and then, at the beginning of an upcoming podcast, you will hear a special dedicated mini-section analyzing the passages where that constellation is referenced. You will be named the avatar of this constellation on earth, the resident of this house of heaven, and you will become a part of the pillar of heaven, holding up the universe and the podcast, or the podcast universe. Only 13 of these positions will be available, one for each constellation of the zodiac, plus Orion, who is the sword of the morning in A Song of Ice and Fire. All right, so there you have it. If you'd like to join the starry host, head on over to patreon.com slash Lucifer Means Lightbringer, or you can find the link on our webpage at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. I want to say thank you in advance to anyone who decides to become a patron of Mythical Astronomy. I have several ideas for mandala designs based on different lines of symbolism, so depending on how the interest goes with the t-shirts, I hope to expand that part of our operation. I'm pretty excited about this. I enjoy making esoteric art just as much as I enjoy talking about it. The idea is to make designs that you can wear around in public and look cool and interesting without screaming out, I'm super into this really nerdy Game of Thrones podcast, you guys! The first couple that I make will have the title of the podcast on them, but I'll make others with no words at all. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. And with that, I'd like to present to you an essay which has already been up on my WordPress page under a tab labeled Methodology. I put this out on westeros.org last year under the slightly snappier title, George R.R. R. Martin is Writing Modern Mythology, but both titles are accurate. 
So far, we've given you five podcasts worth of close analysis of the text and its internal mythology, plus our collaboration with History of Westeros. But one thing that we haven't discussed very much is methodology. That is to say, why do I think we can analyze the text in the way we have done so far on the Mythical Astronomy podcast? How am I so confident that George is hiding this entire layer of double meaning inside the main action of the text? We've been going through scene after scene, and I'm pointing to this and that and saying, that represents Lightbringer, the fire of the gods, and she's a moon maiden, symbolically giving birth to dragons, and look, there's the moon blood again, and so on and so forth. I'm also claiming that Martin has created these archetypal roles of Solar King and Moon Maiden, and is then in turn fashioning his many characters as different incarnations of these archetypes, each with their own spin, pun intended. These ideas form the backbone of our methodology, the rules by which we analyze the text. I understand that at first, these essays might seem like some sort of conspiracy theory type of thing. Look, a Song of Ice and Fire is riddled with double meanings all the way through. George R. R. Martin has hidden this whole secret story within a story. It seems like an ambitious claim at first. I get that. But what I have found is that George is really just participating in a tradition of highly symbolic literature, and this tradition ultimately dates back to what we would call mythology. In many ways, I think it's accurate to say that he's writing A Song of Ice and Fire in the style of classic mythology. I also think there are many differences, of course, and in certain instances, Martin is even taking these traditions to the next level of scope and complexity. When understood with this in mind, it makes perfect sense that the scenes and characters in the main story would parallel the archetypes he's created with his own internal mythology. It also makes sense for him to draw from the millennia-old archetypes of classic world mythology and spin them into new states of being. This is yet another way in which he is carrying on literary tradition, by giving clear allusions to the greats who have gone before him, as most great writers do. More than anything, I believe the importance of what George is doing is carrying forward the tradition of symbolic literature. It gets down to different modes of human consciousness and different ways of thinking about and understanding the world around you, and your place in it. With the advent of modern science, we've entered a new era of detailed understanding of the universe around us in a way which was not possible for the ancients. For the most part, that's a great thing, and really, it couldn't be any other way, because the drive for progress is hardwired into the human psyche. But one thing we have done without really thinking about it is to shift our consciousness over from one which uses symbolism and abstract thought to understand and interface with the world around us to an analytical, problem-solving mode of doing the same. I believe that there is tremendous value in keeping in touch with that more symbolic way of thinking, and I think that symbolic art and literature are probably our best ways to do that. By creating a masterwork of symbolism and complex layered metaphor, George R. R. Martin is doing his very damnedest to keep this tradition alive and well. And that, above all else, is what this podcast is about. I started writing because I realized that dragons coming from a cracked moon could only be meteorites, and meteorites are probably the best way to cause a long night type situation. But I kept writing and kept putting more and more energy into it because I began to comprehend the true importance of what Martin has crafted. And of course, because it's simply ingenious and clever, and I get really fired up about that sort of thing. George R.R. R. Martin is writing modern mythology. So there you have it, our raison d'etre, our mission statement. And now, to kick off this short essay about George R.R. R. Martin's brand of modern mythology, I'm going to quote a summary of the central thesis to Joseph Campbell's Masks of God, Creative Mythology, and this is from Wikipedia. Campbell believed that in the modern world, the function served by formal, traditional mythological systems has been taken on by individual creators such as artists and philosophers. In the works of some of his favorites, such as Thomas Mann, Pablo Picasso, and James Joyce, he saw mythological themes that could serve the same life-giving purpose that mythology had once played. The premise of these essays is that George R. R. Martin is writing A Song of Ice and Fire as modern mythology, and therefore can be analyzed in the same way that world mythology can be analyzed. Almost all world mythology is based on astronomy and nature to some extent, and the legends of A Song of Ice and Fire are no different. This is basically the simplest expression of what I've learned through intense research and scrutiny of the novels. To be more specific, 
I make the following assertions. The in-world myths of Planetos are all describing astronomical events and significant natural phenomena, such as floods, earthquakes, meteor strikes, volcanoes, and the cycle of the seasons. That does not mean they do not contain other meanings or other truths, or that some of these figures may have actually existed, but on some level, all of these myths describe natural and celestial events which occurred in the ancient past. When you consider that almost all magic in A Song of Ice and Fire takes the form of magically personified forces of nature, such as ice demons that come with winter winds and the long night, dragons that are fire-made flesh, and the weirwood tree greenseer magic, it makes even more sense that the in-world mythologies are based on nature and astronomy. The second assertion is this. These in-world myths of A Song of Ice and Fire are highly symbolic and can be analyzed by applying the traditional meanings associated with various symbols in real-world mythology. George has specifically drawn from certain mythologies such as Norse, Greek, Chinese, and Egyptian myth, from Arthurian legend, from Christianity, Mithraism, and Gnosticism. These are all more or less confirmed or generally accepted as influences, and there are no doubt other mythologies which George has drawn from as well. In general, George is using the symbols from these stories in the same ways that they are used in the real-world myth, which encourages readers to study the myths from which he seems to be drawing to gain a deeper understanding of the context in which these symbols are being used. By doing so, George is speaking in a language which has been utilized by man for thousands of years and participating in a grand literary and cultural tradition. The language of mythology is symbolism. The third assertion I want to make is this. In addition to the in-world legends being written as symbolic myth, the main action of the story is often written in the same way. This is the most significant piece of information in this podcast, the most important thing to understand about the way I think George is writing his books. The main action of the story is written as mythology, in the language of symbolism, and can also be analyzed like mythology. Creating realistic background lore for his universe is one thing, but recreating those myths in the main action of the book is the truly amazing feat of creativity here. The main pattern of the astronomy theory on which this page is founded is that of the sun destroying the moon with a comet, followed by that moon raining down meteors on planetos to cause the long night. All of these essays will highlight sections of the text which I believe are written as metaphors depicting some version of this sun-kill-moon scenario. At the beginning, I wasn't sure if I was hallucinating when I found the first few instances of sun-kill-moon metaphors. But a year and a half later, I've discovered half a hundred of these metaphors, or near enough as makes no matter. I can say with absolute confidence, more than any other assertion in any of my essays, that George is in fact writing large sections of the text in many chapters of every book, including the World of Ice and Fire and the Duncan Egg novellas, as extended metaphors depicting this basic astronomy pattern. Assertion number four. George has created mythological archetypes for his own world based on the celestial events of the sun-kill-moon long night scenario. Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa are the most famous ones, whose archetypal roles are based on the sun and the moon, as we've discussed all throughout these essays. There's certainly been a lot of discussion in the fandom about just what it means for someone to be Azor Ahai Reborn, quote-unquote. Now, what I believe this means is that Jon Snow or Daenerys or anyone else might be stepping into the role of Azor Ahai to some extent, stepping into Azor Ahai's A Song of Ice and Fire archetype, that of the Solar Dragon King. These archetypes are like repeating patterns. There are many Solar Kings who take two wives in literal fashion, and many more scenes where various characters do the same symbolically. Thus, we arrive at the second most important premise, of my approach to a Song of Ice and Fire analysis, and this will be assertion number five. All of the characters in the main story are at times symbolically replaying the actions of their corresponding a Song of Ice and Fire archetypes from the Dawn Age. Whenever someone has a flaming sword, such as Beric or Stannis, or Jon in his dream of wielding a burning red sword, you can be sure that they are playing the role of Azor High in a metaphorical scene. Whenever anyone puts on an antlered helm, such as Robert or Renly do, you can be sure that they are acting out some important bit of Garth the Green lore, or perhaps you might say, Sacred Order of Green Men lore, the two being interconnected in my opinion. 
When Rob is crowned as the King in the North, he's actually giving us information about the original King of Winter. Read Catelyn's first chapter of A Clash of Kings if you have any doubt about that. Wow. These are some obvious examples, but there are many more along these lines. Because George is using these archetypes consistently, and because he is using the characters in the main story to give us information about the characters and events of the Dawn Age and the Long Night, it can therefore be asserted that, and this is number six, the broad strokes of the important events of the Dawn Age can be determined by analyzing the in-world legends and the main action of A Song of Ice and Fire using the methods laid out above. This is one of the central aims of my series of essays, and because we are currently still dealing with the unresolved issue of the first Long Night, in the story that is, and because the characters and the events of the Long Night seem to be being replayed in some form, I also assert that, and this is number seven, we can learn about the potential paths which our main characters must walk to restore harmony to the Song of Ice and Fire by analyzing the in-world legends and main action of A Song of Ice and Fire using the methods laid out above. No, I'm not really big into predictions, it must be said. That's not really the focus of this work. But if we can learn about what it means to play the role of Azor High, then we might begin to get an idea of what that could mean for John and Danny and anyone else who may be playing some part of that role. At the very least, we'll gain important context to their future choices and actions, so that when they make them, we'll have a better understanding of what they're doing and what the implications might be. After all, at the end of the day, it's all about the characters and their conflict of the heart, as our beloved author loves to remind us again and again. One thing I'd like to note is that this use of symbolism in the main text is not limited to what I like to call mythical astronomy, of course. Perhaps one of the most well-known examples of a scene which serves as an extended metaphor is Sansa's snow castle scene, which relates information through symbolism about Sansa herself, her past, her future, important events relative to her arc, etc. A great analysis of this was done by Westeros.org forum user Ragnarok in association with the Pawn to Player project. You can find that by searching for foreshadowing and symbolism in Sansa's snow castle scene, which is to be found again on westeros.org. Although my own research focuses on the astronomy metaphors, George's use of symbolism and metaphor is essentially ubiquitous. That's why his text bears the level of scrutiny that it's received in the two decades that the books have existed. This is also one of the reasons, quite possibly, why it takes him several years to write a book. Here's a brief list of a few other essays that do symbolic analysis of complex metaphor in the main text, some of which inspired me to give it a go. There's an analysis of Jon Snow as Mithras by Westeros.org forum user Schmendrick. I mention this one quite frequently, and I think it's one of the best works ever to come out of the forums. This was a huge inspiration to me before I got started. There's an excellent analysis of Stannis as Agamemnon by Westeros.org forum user Risto, which also has a terrific introduction discussing the way in which George draws from many myths and influences without entirely recreating any of them. There's very important context given here to understanding Stannis, and it's a terrific essay overall. There's an entire series of incredible essays analyzing Arthurian parallels in A Song of Ice and Fire by Radio Westeros's Lady Guinevere. These will keep you busy for a while, and after you write Lady Guinevere a nice thank you note, you can thank me for sending you there. There's an examination of the Tower of Joy in light of the Celtic myth behind Arthurian legend by Westeros.org forum user KingMonkey. The proper title is Eddard in Wonderland, so you know you have to read that. Getting behind the Arthurian stories to the underlying Celtic mythology is very cool. There's a symbolic analysis of blood in A Song of Ice and Fire by Westeros.org forum user Evita MGFS. Evita really has a great understanding of symbolism. I learned quite a lot about all the various implications of blood, as well as things which can represent it symbolically. Some of the stuff she's drawn out of A Song of Ice and Fire is truly impressive. Methodology The specific methods of analysis we will be applying to A Song of Ice and Fire are as follows, and these definitions are also taken from Wikipedia. Comparative Mythology The comparison of myths from different cultures in an attempt to identify shared themes and characteristics. Archaeoastronomy 
the study of how people in the past have understood the phenomenon in the sky, how they use these phenomena, and what role the sky has played in their cultures. Archaeoastronomy considers symbolically rich cultural interpretations of phenomena in the sky by other cultures. Etiology, the study of causation or origination. An etiological myth or origin myth is a myth intended to explain the origins of cult practices, natural phenomena, proper names, etc. Cosmology, the study of the origin, evolution, and eventual fate of the universe. Religious or mythological cosmology is a body of beliefs based on mythological, religious, and esoteric literature and traditions of creation and eschatology. Another motive for studying the sky is to understand and explain the universe. Myth was a tool for achieving this, and the explanations, while not reflecting the standards of modern science, are cosmologies. Comparative Mythology Based on Astronomy I'm not going to go into further detail for all four of these disciplines, as they really all dovetail into comparative mythology for our purposes here. In a nutshell, comparative mythology strips down mythologies to their fundamental aspects, themes, and symbols, and then compares them one to another to see if they might be telling the same story. Myths which function as cosmologies are really what we are discussing here. The very first myths and legends were ancient man's way of understanding the world in which he lived. Knowledge of your environment is of course fundamental to the hunter-gatherer way of life, and continues to be so through man's shift into farming and sedentary life. It was this knowledge which became encoded in mythologies, which in turn functioned as a cosmology for the people who carry on the myth. When one takes into account that most, if not all, world mythology has basis in human observation and interaction with astronomy and nature, it becomes even easier to identify the commonalities. The most common universal archetypes include the world tree, the axis mundi, the dying god, the mother goddess, the creative sacrifice, the ocean of chaos serpent, the horned god, the morning star deity, the hero's journey, and many others. The list of gods and goddesses who die in the fall and resurrect with the spring, for example, or who are trapped in the underworld for the same period of time, is a very long list indeed. This, of course, is a simple way of understanding the cycle of the seasons. The sun grows weak for a few months, everything gets cold, the plants die, etc. Then the sun comes back strong again, the earth warms, and the plants begin to grow. There are countless variations of this idea, but they all relate to the cycle of the seasons. Pretty much everywhere you go, comets are described as snakes and dragons. From Chinese mythology to Mithraism and Zoroastrianism. From Greek mythology, Vedic mythology, and Mesoamerican myth. It's the same story. Dragons fly through the air breathing fire and bring devastation and often flooding. Think of the many sea dragon, ocean of chaos serpent myths. So it's easy to see the similarity to a flaming meteor or comet. On the American continents, we find Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent of Aztec myth, and his Mayan equivalent Kukulkan, who is identified with the morning star Venus, as well as comets. It's said that he has a smoky star eye, and he's also associated with obsidian mirrors and knives, interestingly. On the other side of the world, on the Indian subcontinent, we look in the ancient pages of the Bhagavata Purana, where we learn of Kalki, the fulfiller. We read that, In the twilight of this age, when all kings will be thieves, the lord of the universe will be born as Kalki. Kalki will come riding on a white horse and holding a sword blazing like a comet as he destroys the evildoers and punishes the world, although he does comfort the virtuous, quote-unquote. From the ashes of the world's destruction, a new mankind will arise. Quetzalcoatl, too, is associated with the death of one world age and the birth of the next. Flaming comet swords, a reborn morning star who remakes the world in terrible fashion, the reason these ideas remind you of Azor Ahai is because George is drawing from well-established mythological precedent. Jesus Christ of the Christian Bible, there's a famous guy. He's associated with ushering in a new world age through his death and resurrection. He's also associated with a comet, the wandering star which the wise men followed, as well as the morning star itself, which is a title he's given many times in the New Testament. In fact, 
Jesus has all the hallmarks of a classic morning star deity, just like Quetzalcoatl and Kalki, Osiris, Phaethon, Ishtar, Ninana, Tammuz, and the older pre-New Testament ideas of Lucifer. Joseph Campbell concerning Jesus as a morning star deity from the Masks of God. It is clear that whether accurate or not as to biographical detail, the moving legend of the crucified and risen Christ was fit to bring a new warmth, immediacy, and humanity to the old motifs of the beloved Tammuz, Adonis, and Osiris cycles. Joseph Campbell is the most well-known person associated with comparative mythology for his seminal works The Power of Myth and Hero with a Thousand Faces, as well as many other books and countless lectures. He's famous for a concept called the monomyth, which can either be used generically to refer to the archetypes and myth structures which are repeated across large parts of the globe, or to the specific monomyth, which Campbell referred to as the hero's journey, which he saw as the fundamental universal mythological archetype. Comparative mythology is often used to attempt to trace patterns of cultural transference. If two separate peoples have a similar myth, down to specific identifying details or characteristics, a common ancestor or source can potentially be inferred, in some cases. Much debate occurs around this, of course. Some tend to see the common recurring mythological archetypes as the result of a common ancestor, including some who think all myth must go back to one civilization such as Atlantis, or some similarly vanished culture of advanced knowledge and learning. Others tend to look to the Jungian concept of the collective unconscious, and or see independent invention of motifs and themes, which are themselves ubiquitous in human society. I tend to strike a middle ground myself, as do most scholars. Sometimes it's cultural transference, and sometimes it's just two different cultures making myths about the cycle of the seasons and arriving at similar stories. I'm holding out for evidence of Atlantis, but I'm not searching for knowledge of my past life there, if you know what I mean. The Flood myth is the most well-known example of a monomyth which almost certainly points to real meteorological events, the period of intense global flooding during the meltdown of the recent Ice Age, which we are still technically emerging from. It's conservatively estimated that global sea levels rose as much as 300 feet or possibly more during this period, lasting from approximately 13,000 BCE to 7,000 BCE, and much of this sea level rise came in concentrated bursts which indicate massive glacial meltwater flooding, and this idea is corroborated by other lines of evidence. The flood myths, which are nearly ubiquitous in world myth, must surely date back to this time. This is more or less what the long night is to a song of ice and fire, a global catastrophe which affected the lives of everyone, everywhere, and which gave rise to a variety of myths describing its various catastrophic effects. Comparative mythology is what leads me to connect the story of the Grey King to the story of Durin Godsgrief, as well as to that of the Bloodstone Emperor. All three stories tell of stealing something divine from heaven. Fire in one story, the daughter of the wind and sea gods in another, and a black stone of magical power slash casting down the true gods in the third, and always followed by incredibly destructive weather. I've attempted to show that all of these ideas describe a piece of moon falling from heaven and causing catastrophes. The Bloodstone Emperor challenged the gods and drew magical power from the black meteorite that he worshipped, and he was remembered as having caused the long night by doing so. The storm god's thunderbolt and the island-drowning sea dragon of the Grey King legend are both excellent descriptions of falling meteors, and both enabled the Grey King to possess the fire of the gods after challenging or slaying them. In Durin's tale, I would assert that the daughter of the wind and sea gods, who was stolen from heaven, is also symbolic of a fallen star, in particular one which falls into the sea. After Durin Godsgrief steals the goddess Elenai from heaven, the storms rage up the narrow sea. This is because Elenai, a daughter of the wind and waves, represents the moon goddess who fell into the sea and created tidal waves. It's said that the weather permanently changed for Storm's End after this event, with it receiving worse storms now, and indeed, joining the cold, shivering sea to the warm summer sea would significantly alter the ocean currents and thus the weather and climate of that region and perhaps the entire globe. The Ironborn myths also include mermaids, which are another incarnation of the drowned goddess idea, as well as hammering waves, drowned land, and drowned fire. All of these myths may be working together to tell the same story on a certain level a story which we can corroborate by looking in the text for metaphors about fallen stars, 
drowned or bloody moons and moon maidens, and flood tides, and then drawing comparisons between them and these foundational myths which I've just discussed. Joseph Campbell, George R. R. Martin, and the Importance of Symbolic Thinking. Why is this important instead of merely interesting? This question gets down to the reason mankind creates myth, the function of myth. I've talked about cosmological myth, and that's starting to get at it. Mankind needs a way to understand and relate to, and even commune with, nature. To elaborate further, I must turn to more learned sources than myself. Wikipedia again! Well, a summary of some of Joseph Campbell's ideas from his Wikipedia entry, that is. He has a fantastic fourfold description of the role of myth in human society, which appears at the end of The Masks of God, Creative Mythology, and which he also referred to in many lectures as a freestanding concept. Instead of doing my own inadequate paraphrase, I'll quote directly from Wikipedia. I'm not going to go into deep detail on all of these functions of myth. However, all four are relevant to A Song of Ice and Fire, and some quite obviously so. A few of these ideas have been addressed already, and will simply gain further illumination here. The Functions of Myth The Metaphysical Function Awakening a Sense of Awe Before the Mystery of Being According to Campbell, the absolute mystery of life, what he called transcendent reality, cannot be captured directly in words or images. Symbolic and mythic metaphors, on the other hand, point outside themselves and into that reality. They are what Campbell called being statements, and their enactment through ritual can give to the participant a sense of that ultimate mystery as an experience. Quoting from Joseph Campbell, Mythological symbols touch and exhilarate centers of life beyond the reach of reason and coercion. The first function of mythology is to reconcile waking consciousness to the awe-inspiring mystery of this universe as it is. The Cosmological Function, Explaining the Shape of the Universe For pre-modern societies, myth also functioned as a proto-science, offering explanations for the physical phenomena that surrounded and affected their lives, such as the change of seasons and the life cycles of animals and plants. The sociological function, validate and support the existing social order. Ancient societies had to conform to an existing social order if they were to survive at all. This is because they evolved under pressure from necessities much more intense than the ones encountered in our modern world. Mythology confirmed that order and enforced it by reflecting it into the stories themselves, often describing how the order arrived from divine intervention. Campbell often referred to these conformity myths as the right-hand path to reflect the brain's left hemisphere's abilities for logic, order, and linearity. Together with these myths, however, he observed the existence of the left-hand path, mythic patterns like the hero's journey, which are revolutionary in character in that they demand from the individual a surpassing of social norms and sometimes even of morality. The pedagogical function, guide the individual through the stages of life. As a person goes through life, many psychological challenges will be encountered. Myth may serve as a guide for successful passage through the stages of one's life. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And the thing I want to hone in on here is this. The reason that myth is important is because symbolic forms of communication are the only means of transmitting esoteric truths. That's the definition of an esoteric truth, something which cannot be directly explained, but only shown indirectly. Man has used symbolic thinking for thousands of years to understand the most important truths about life itself and the world around us. But in only the last few centuries, we have almost completely transitioned over to a rational, materialist, scientific way of thinking. We have surely learned much from this new form of thought, this new configuration of consciousness, and I in no way mean to denigrate it. However, I do wonder if we run the risk of being too quick to abandon our older traditions and ways of thought, which have coalesced over the course of thousands of years of human existence, in favor of the wholesale embrace of the potential of this new, highly logical, scientific mode of thought to explain all the mysteries of life. I think that George R. R. Martin is doing a tremendous service to the world by creating modern art which participates in this grand tradition of symbolic language and esoteric communication. 
I've gained a renewed and deepened understanding of myth and symbolism through the process of writing and researching these essays, which has been of tremendous benefit to me in my own personal life. I cannot overstate this. These new ideas have stimulated personal growth and a renewed awe of nature's majesty. By following the trail of Martin's influences, I've learned all manner of things about all manner of cultures, which I never would have come across otherwise. Readers of A Song of Ice and Fire are invited to follow these trails. I have to think that this is part of Martin's intent. While proper understanding of esoteric forms of learning are tremendously beneficial, the opposite can be quite painful. It is a lack of understanding of symbolic thinking that leads to religious extremism of the sort which causes violence and oppression. To quote Campbell on religion, Every religion is true one way or another. It is true when understood metaphorically, but when it gets stuck in its own metaphors, interpreting them as facts, then you're in trouble. Interpreting metaphorical teachings literally has undoubtedly led to a great deal of suffering, to put it mildly. The great tragedy of this is that the wisdom of an inspired person becomes an instrument of subjugation and oppression. Much of the power of the original message is there, but twisted into something far away from the original intent. I could cite many examples of this phenomenon, but it's likely you're thinking of a few already, and that's really outside the purview of this essay. Suffice it to say, mythology and religion can get really wacky really fast when you try to interpret it literally, and it can be used to justify acts of evil which men would ordinarily not commit. There's another potential tragedy here as well. Campbell again. God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all human categories of thought, even the categories of being and non-being. Those are categories of thought. I mean, it's as simple as that. So it depends on how much you want to think about it, whether it's doing you any good, whether it's putting you in touch with the mystery that's the ground of your own being. If it isn't, well, it's a lie. So half the people in the world are religious people who think that their metaphors are facts, those are what we call theists. The other half are people who know that the metaphors are not facts, and so they're lies. Those are the atheists. What Campbell is saying here is that rejecting esoteric teachings because they are not literally true can be just as bad as interpreting them as literal truth. Unfortunately, religious extremists who interpret esoteric truths literally end up creating the other kind of person, people who have been burned or scarred from their experience with religion, quote-unquote, and as a result have become sole practitioners of the logical, rational materialist way of thinking. Someone who does this cuts themselves off from a fundamental aspect of human existence and a valuable source of ancient knowledge. Another aspect of what Campbell is saying here contains the same message as a well-known Bible verse. You shall know a tree by its fruit. Matthew 7:20. At a certain level, it doesn't matter if you worship the flying spaghetti monster or a well-known deity, or if you worship whatever you find divine in some non-specific, non-religious way. You can make a meditative act out of anything, or said another way, you can make anything into a form of art. Symbolic thinking, too, does not depend on any particular story or set of beliefs. It doesn't have to be ancient legends or ideas, even. Star Wars, for example, is drenched in symbolism. George Lucas, famously, is a huge fan of Campbell and was one of the first well-known modern artists to claim a heavy Campbellian influence, although Hero with a Thousand Faces is something of a standard issue in the story-writing business at this point. The question is always the same. What is it doing for you? What is the fruit of the tree? Going deeper, we are compelled to ask, how do we choose to think? What do we fill our minds with? What rituals do we practice, intentionally or unintentionally? Campbell sets out the criteria. Is it doing you any good? Is it putting you in touch with the mystery that's the ground of your own being? Everyone can take their own path at answering this question because truth is universal, but we should all be asking that question about the way we live our lives. Pulling from Wikipedia again, the full quote with which I began the essay. Campbell believed that in the modern world, the function served by formal traditional mythological systems has been taken on by individual creators such as artists and philosophers. In the works of some of his favorites, such as Thomas Mann, Pablo Picasso, and James Joyce, he saw mythological themes that could serve the same life-giving purpose that mythology had once played. 
Accordingly, Campbell believed the religions of the world to be the various culturally influenced masks of the same fundamental transcendent truths. All religions can bring one to an elevated awareness above and beyond a dualistic conception of reality or idea of pairs of opposites, such as being and non-being, or right and wrong. Indeed, he quotes from the Rig Veda in the preface to the hero with a thousand faces, Truth is one, the sages speak of it by many names. Martin actually rephrases this idea out of the mouth of Daenerys in a storm of swords. One voice may speak you false, but in many there is always truth to be found. I think if Joseph Campbell were alive today, he would surely recognize the value and scope of George R. R. Martin's participation in this most grand, ancient, and precious tradition, that of symbolic language. In other words, George R. R. Martin is writing modern mythology. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining the Amethyst Koala and myself on the podcast today. We really hope you enjoyed stepping outside the narrative of the story and talking about how A Song of Ice and Fire fits into literary tradition, or perhaps you might say, ancient literary tradition. As always, thanks to Animals as Leaders for allowing us to play their music on the podcast, and thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing these lovely novels. Thanks to everyone who takes a look at our Patreon campaign and considers supporting the podcast. You can find the link to that at luciferMeansLightbringer.com. If you noticed any difference in sound quality, that's because we've recently had a passing in the computer family. My trusty iMac of six years finally bit the dust, and I am, for the moment, computerless. We made this podcast on a friend's computer with different software, so I didn't have my usual audio setup. I may have to record the next couple podcasts like this until I can get a replacement, so bear with us. This is LML signing off. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And don't forget to go subscribe to the new podcast feed.